everyone, and welcome back to Ear Read This. Following on from our episode on the first part of Henry VI, today I have an extended interview for you with my special guest, Hayley Backrack. Hayley is a dramaturg, writer and critic who recently worked on an adaptation of the Henry VI plays for Shakespeare's Globe. We spoke during quarantine last year about the challenges of editing Shakespeare, standout versions of the plays, and the ethics of diverse casting. You can find links to Hayley's website and Twitter in the episode description box below, and also sign up to her terrific newsletter, Dramatis Personae, in which she provides breakdowns of Shakespeare characters. I particularly enjoyed her analysis of the character of young Clifford from Henry VI, parts two and three. I started off our conversation by asking Hayley how she came to be involved in the Globe's production of Henry VI. So um, I'm doing a PhD, Mm. I'm about to finish, and it is in collaboration with the Globe and the topic is women in history plays. So I've been thinking about histories constantly for the past like three and a half years. And so shortly after I began, the Globe announced this season where they were going to do Henry IV and Henry V in the summer and Henry VI and Richard III in the winter with a single company. Mm. And because I was sort of already working with the Globe on my PhD, I was sort of like, hello. what if I got involved in that somehow? Um, So I started out in the summer, just sort of like semi-observing, but sort of observing sort of morphed into participating in various ways, like providing kind of historical, cultural, dramaturgical input. Mm. And so then when we got to the winter, I was going to stick around and I ended up getting into conversation with Ilinka Rajulian, who I mentioned was the co-director of those productions. And there's a lot of sort of back and forth about like, will we do all three plays? Will we do shortened versions of all three plays? And it eventually landed on, no, we're going to do one adapted version Mm. of what was originally going to be all three plays. And then over the course of adapting, it became just part two and part three. Um, So it just sort of became, I just sort of like stood in the corner and no one ever asked me to leave. (laughs) And uh, then eventually I was like, can I help with that? And that's really how it happened. And then you, played Henry VI. I mean, there was, listen, I had so many nightmares about being asked to go on as various characters. <laughs> so the, I'm, I'm interested in the, uh, the, the abridging and the, the cutting down. It's been mm-hmm. obviously a kind of popular thing to do in the past with Henry IV and V, but also with, with Henry VI to kind of streamline them. Streamline them. Um, yes. Are there any particular successes in your, in your view? Is there any particularly successful I mean, I think ours is pretty great. <laughs> uh, Obviously. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's really hard. I mean, okay, to go back to, I haven't, I've never seen Henry VI on stage. Oh, really? Any of them. Uh, yeah, except for our own. So I have heard of, I mean, I think there's some famous Rose Rage was Propeller's adaptation of um, the Henry VI plays, which is very famous and I've read it and it's very good mm. actually. And then I did see, I saw Queen Margaret at the theater, uh, Manchester Royal Exchange, yeah. which I did not think was super successful sort of for the reasons that I discussed. I think that, you know, the reason we didn't do it that way, centralizing Margaret was because structurally it doesn't actually work that well. Mm. It's really hard when she is not sort of on the outside trying to get in. Yeah. Um, and I think that that product, that, it was amazing performances like you know every all the sort of elements of the production were really good but the script itself sort of laid bare that problem Mm. of when Margaret doesn't have the sort of structure of the play itself to fight against she becomes a very sort of limp and weird and directionless character I think for the Henry the fourth plays which I don't know if you actually were asking about but you mentioned them um I think Orson Welles Chimes at Midnight is actually amazing um 
a credible film. And that's the only, oh, and then I thought that uh, when Philida Lloyd and co did their conflated version of Henry IV uh, at the Dunmar, mm. that was a, I think Henry IV sort of has its set way of being conflated, doesn't it? You sort of tack on the same old scenes from part two and everyone kind of does it the same way. And that works fine. Um, I think for both of them, you know, it does a disservice. It's, it's, it's especially, I mean, I think we all recognize that like Henry IV part one and two are great plays and sort of can stand alone and have had great productions of standing alone. I think people conflate Henry VI because they don't really trust them. Yeah. And they think like these plays are weird and kind of boring and really long. And so we're just going to sort of package it into this more manageable structure and also into a structure that feels more dramatic in a familiar way mm. it sort of feels more aristotelian we can build in the sort of arc that people expect yeah. if we conflate them which the plays emphatically do not have <laughs> um in their original form but i you know i think that they are like amazing plays it was so i mean this is the reason we sort of ended up there were a lot of reasons we ended up not including part one but a lot of them was we were like Part two and part three are so good. We want to include as much of both of them as we possibly can. Mm. And we'd rather have more of fewer plays than less of all the plays. Um, and so, you know, I think that they really, I, 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 I believe in them. I think they deserve the chance to prove themselves in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually really, I mean, this is like embarrassing to say, I should have gone and done a lot of research into different versions of the adaptations before trying to help make one, but I didn't do that. <laughs> but it must have also been like, I, I mean, as any actor must think if they're about to play a famous role. I can say as a non-actor, like, oh, well, did you watch like this one and that one? But perhaps, perhaps that's the last right, thing they're you always do. like, no, yeah, no, I was actually, and I think that that was sort of it. You know, it's like, okay, we're. I think once you've sort of decided to adapt them or conflate them, you're deciding we're no longer telling the same mm. story. We're making our own story now, and it's going to have its own arc and it's going to have its own focuses. And I think you just sort of have to fully embrace, like, okay, I mean, literally, what we did in the first pass through was we went and we're like, we're just going to cut every scene we don't like and. <laughs> see where that leaves us and just only have the scenes we think are cool perfect and that got us quite far yeah. you know but it's like yeah you just sort of have to let your own interests guide you well there's enough source material isn't there with those three absolutely. pretty long plays to start that way you know yeah keep, keep yeah absolutely bits. absolutely and so but yeah and just sort of being unashamed about like hey well we're making our own story now so what's that story going to be and maybe not yeah not necessarily being like well how did they do it what story because it's like well they were telling their story we're telling our story yeah with these sort of raw materials. So once you had the raw materials of the good bits, did you <laughs> did you have to make a decision like this? This is the story. If we're in, if we're imposing this structure on it, these are the these are the beats. A thing that Alinka realized really early on, which is just like so brilliant, and really I think for both of us shaped our understanding of how to try to tell a story was exactly this idea that you keep saying that the play is called Henry VI and poor old Henry just never really <laughs> steps up to the plate in the way that everyone, including the other characters and the audience kind of wish that he would. And Alinka pointed out that in a way it's like the power vacuum of the story structurally becomes a protagonist vacuum. You have nobody yeah. to be the main character of the play because Henry can't do it. And so we began to think of it less as sort of, okay, well, these are the beats and this is the arc. And more like if the entire sort of story of the structure is a protagonist vacuum and it's about different characters sort of being like, well, 
nobody else is going to, I guess I'll be the main <laughs> character yeah. and sort of stepping up and then getting killed. And someone else is like, oh, well, he died. Maybe I'm the main character <laughs> and sort of stepping up and taking their turn, sort of letting go of the idea of having like a kind of character driven arc and shape, but sort of letting it be the story of this swirling power vacuum that is driven by a bunch of different characters kind of shooting their shot and being like, well, maybe it is about me actually. And some characters manage that for five seconds and some characters manage that for two hours. Mm. It's like a hot potato thing. Yeah, <laughs> except for like the opposite because you want the potato, yeah, but true. then the potato like explodes in your face and you die. Um, <laughs> Maybe more like a musical, like musical thrones. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so then it became less about like, okay, well, how can we sort of shape this and more about like, okay, well, with that in mind, how can we let each character sort of have their moment mm. and not worry so much about making it make sense as any one character's journey. Yeah, which it seems like the much harder thing to do than say I haven't I didn't see Queen Margaret but I've read it I I, I agreed I, I felt like it it seemed to lose something in the she as a character seemed to lose a little bit in the reading um uh, in that transfer to or promotion maybe to main character um <laughs> yeah. but it almost seems like the more tempting thing to do perhaps is to isolate one character like well it's through them um but to yeah. keep it sort of as you say, like a balancing act and a, and a, and a contention um, to hark back to the actual yeah. title. That, that seems much more difficult. So how was it in terms of when you came to sort of work with the cast to get them on board with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it was, it, that made it easier because it was a structure that let every actor feel like their character was really important. Mm. Um, I think it's really easy and, you know, you, a lot of the history plays to be like, there's the main characters and then there's the assorted lords <laughs> and nobody can tell them apart and we don't care, which I think is unfair. There's a lot of great secondary characters, but certainly that's sometimes how it feels. Um, whereas it was a structure that sort of let everybody feel really invested and I think really gave the productions a lot of intensity because every character was sort of waiting for their shot that they knew was coming. Mm. And sort of, so there is this, to me, this sense of everyone's poised, like as soon as the center of the stage is empty, I'm going to run. It's like a musical chairs thing, exactly. Like there's always this energy of like, it's gonna be me, it's gonna be me. Oh my God, it's me. And then you <laughs> run forward and it's like, no, sorry, Warwick, actually you've been on stage for five minutes and now you're gonna die. Yeah. But you know, this sense of like, nobody, nobody knows who's coming up next and nobody knows kind of, how long they're going to get. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was a really, I, I mean, I can't speak for anybody, but I think the actors found it to be a really sort of exciting structure because it was one that when there's no protagonist, everybody gets to be the protagonist for at least a little bit. Yeah. So it must be really, really difficult to keep the history consistent, keep the plot consistent, make the pacing what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, is it is it difficult when it comes to, because I imagine you're not just lopping out you know, oh, we'll, we'll drop back to scene two. It must be a lot of having that speech, moving that stuff around, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing. Is that difficult too, especially when it's first and there's a certain rhythm to be? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, <laughs> I, I get a little lazy about maintaining verse, but I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's super obvious and you're like, okay, that just sounds awful. We have to find a way. Mm. But, you know, Shakespeare does a thing. I mean, this is what was hard about it to me was Shakespeare does a thing where he repeats himself a lot. Mm. There's especially in the Henry VI plays, it'll be like, I'm going to do a 10 line metaphor. And then I'm going to say the exact same thing for another 10 lines, but with a different metaphor, <laughs> just to make sure that you understood. So it's really easy to be like, okay, well, we get rid of one of the repetitions of that idea. Mm. But we kind of realized, we found that like, 
the repetitions are really useful. <laughs> like you, Shakespeare kind of knows he's being dense. And so he says it twice because it's like, well, maybe you didn't get it the first time, but then you do get it the second time. Yeah. And like it was so we really found that like it begins to feel really spare and actually harder to understand if you cut away mm. too much repetition, ironically, because of course we're always like, oh my God, get to the point. But it's like, no, no, you sort of need to guide us to the point, actually. So that was what I found really hard was not giving into the natural inclination to be like, okay, well, we have a metaphor about a snake and a metaphor about a flower and they're saying the exact same thing. So we'll get rid of Which one's better? Yeah, exactly. But it's like, actually in a weird way, you sort of need both. Mm. Um, So that was what was hard. And what was hard as well was the realization that like, especially with part two, Heavy Six part two, it feels so chaotic. And like the plot, you're like, okay, we're getting to the climax. Oh my God, no, here's freaking Jack Cade. Okay. Oh wait, and now the Duke of York. Okay, like what is the story of this play? But when we started trying to cut anything, we realized that actually the events are really intricately woven together. And it was mm. all but impossible to get rid of any single entire plot point without disrupting or making illogical something like two acts down the road, wow. which was not what I was expecting at all. I was like, no, this play is so episodic. It's going to be so easy to just like lift something out. Mm. And then it turns out you really can't. Yeah, it must have just been a fascinating experience to just start cutting up in that that, yeah. that way yeah yeah I mean it's so interesting to sort of actually yeah to like practically get, dig into like how does this work like what happens to the story if we take out this scene yeah. which is yeah something no scholar would ever ask because like why no it's all just like a creative writing experiment something like William S Burroughs would do yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly and that was yeah, such a surprise to be in that part because I was like yeah it's super episodic thing happens thing happens thing happens and then you're like oh my god no the seed of that happened it's just like so intricate actually was there anything particularly heartbreaking to lose or part with i mean i was really sad to not have joan of mm. arc i think it was a much better storytelling choice i think the thing that we realized because part one most people think and i think it was written later it doesn't actually set up part two and part three mm. as a like it's like a prequel you know in the way that like they go back and they're like he's called han solo because <laughs> of this dumb contrived thing yeah and so it's like a lot, it's like, oh, they fight. It's the red and the white roses because they were in a rose garden. Mm. And you're like, okay, I didn't need to know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not fine. Okay, thanks. And so, and it just felt like it, it was better for the sort of pacing and the storytelling and the characters to not have part one. Mm. But I was really sad to lose Joan. Um, and then there's this, what this is like so specific. Um, there's this scene that I was really, I like really tried to get back in for like way too long where it's in Henry VI part three. And so at the, so Henry loses the crown to Edward IV, mm. who is the brother of the future King Richard III and also of George, who no one likes. And Edward's whole thing, he messes up. He's supposed to marry this French lady, but then he falls madly in love with this English widow. And he's like, I must marry her. She's so hot. And so they get married. And then some battles start again. And there's this one weird little scene where um, there's like all these battles and things and Edward's been captured and his wife, Elizabeth, is like running through and she's pregnant. She's with her brother for some reason. And her brother's just like, oh, what's going on? What do we do? And she's just like, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening. Like she just sort of is like, if we get captured, we're screwed. We have to take sanctuary. Like she's just like on the ball solving problems. And then like, it's like this tiny little scene. But I just love it as this moment of like, I mean, sort of in the way that the Lady Percy scenes function of like, these are the sort of unintended consequences of everything that's happening. She is the person who sort of has to bear the burden of like figuring out what to do now. 
Um, and I just loved that little scene and it just didn't fit in the way that we sort of paced the ending of uh, part three, but I really, I really wanted it there. <laughs> there must've been so many moments like that where the, you, you'd have to pick your hill to die on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, so you, you referenced earlier the kind of sort of disagreements you had or debates that you had uh, um, about Joan and other things. Were there any other particular, I'm, I'm thinking more like, interpretations of characters like like Henry or Margaret the the interpretation stuff really was you know that's more kind of rehearsal room mm. you know like I think there's only so much you can kind of do to shape a character or at least that wasn't something that we were interested in trying to do we didn't really want to cut in ways that would kind of change who a character was mm. and that was something actually that we really agreed on was that as often as possible we wanted to include lines that sort of undermined this image of Henry as weak and kind of sad and pathetic and inept because he does have a lot of moments where he sort of asserts himself or kind of speaks up or kind of states his values in ways that are quite powerful. Um, and so that was something that we were really on the same page about was like any any opportunity to include a moment like that for Henry was something that we always kind of went out of our way to make sure was there. But no, I think the kind of only, it was the 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 part one question was really the big question and the sort of only thing and even that became like I was team yes we must have Joan for a really long time and then eventually kind of surrendered to the fact that no it was better for it to not be there dramatically in terms of again telling the story that we were telling and shaping the play that we were shaping it you know that was what worked quite well was that we were at the time that Alinka and I had our first conversation, I wasn't sort of officially on board yet. And I think had we had this first conversation and been on radically different pages, I probably wouldn't have helped her cut it because that would have just been like fighting. Yeah. Um, I think it was the fact that we sort of agreed about what the plays were and what would be interesting to do with them was why we ended up doing, I ended up getting to help out in the first place, frankly. So yeah, there wasn't a lot of kind of argument. Yeah, I mean, I think there were things we originally, we cut, she cut Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester, at one point, and I sort of put her back. And then she was like, there's no time. And I was like, yeah, but we need it. You know, just like things like that, yeah. where you're just sort of like, how do you balance things? But um, I think it was, yeah, the kind of, I think because the fundamentals were the same, it was like, it was always, you could always reach, we could always reach a solution because we kind of agreed on the most basic and important level about what the play was and what we were interested in doing with it. Yeah but so much trickier to define without having that sort of figure as a pairing tool where, where you could say yeah. something like, but it's so much more interesting as a history to have this sort of messy stuff like, yeah, okay, it doesn't really serve the plot, but it definitely adds to the life of this play. It's it's le it's definitely less without that scene. Um, yeah. You can't just explain it in terms of plot. No, exactly. And that was sort of the big, I think that if anything was a conflict, especially when we got into the rehearsal room and sort of continued cutting things was like making the case for like, not everything has to advance the plot. We shouldn't just be cutting things because they don't appear to advance the plot. No. And appear being the operative word, because often they do in just in ways that sort of aren't immediately obvious or sort of aren't don't kind of come to fruition until much later. Mm. But also, yeah, like Shakespeare's intentionally building in these sort of lulls you can't sort of go at 100 miles per hour every single second of a play or else you sort of start to glaze over you need the sort of ebbs and flows and you need the moments that yeah I mean it's, again with this it's like well what is the plot what are we advancing yeah. you know if you say that doesn't advance the plot it's like whose plot like it advances that character's plot so yeah. 
I think, yeah, that is definitely, I think if there was one, and again, this was more sort of once we're in the room and sort of in the panic phase of like, this is three and a half hours long. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, but again, I think it's, yeah, everybody on some level agreed. And so it was, it was, you know, productive kind of, it was always a productive conversation to have. And there were always kind of like, I don't think there was ever kind of things that were raised where I couldn't understand like, oh yeah, I see your point. Mm. Even if I didn't necessarily like if we even if we came to a different conclusion in the end or whatever yeah i i'm like you i haven't seen um full productions of henry the six i've seen a, a truncated version and i've watched a bbc version of the three plays oh yeah i watched the the hollow crown one as well unless it was a huge big budget um super season with bbc money or maybe rsc but who <laughs> knows about that now i can't really imagine anyone staging a sort of um you know, we're, we're going to do Henry the Sixth, part one, two, and three. Or I'm go we're going to do all of the history plays back to back. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a marketing issue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> who's going to who's going to come to Henry the Sixth, part just two? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is a shame because actually, I think you can totally watch just part two. But as soon as you tack these numbers on, people are like, "Well, I haven't seen part one." Yeah. <laughs> ah, so <laughs> where's Henry um, the First? Yeah, exactly. Supposedly, that's what happened when they released Kenneth Branagh's Henry the Fifth in the states. Really? They did some marketing poll, and like people were like, "Well, it was fine, but I wished I'd seen Henry the First through fourth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, those don't. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is like the difficulty of the history plays is they are really hard to get done and really hard to market mm. unless you have someone famous in them, which is why you usually have someone famous in them. Yep. And then it's the question of when it's Henry VI, like who is the famous person playing? Yeah. They're not playing Henry VI. I mean, they're playing Richard III, mm. but then you sort of, you've got two and a half plays before he shows up yep. or at least before he shows up and kind of takes over. Yeah, it's like it's hard. It's hard to know what you kind of market it on the back of because, like, obviously, I think they're amazing plays, but they are not <laughs> famous. And even like, you know, I my I Shakespeare professor in uni was like, oh yeah, the Henry Six plays suck. Like, even people who really? kind of like Shakespeare are told that they're bad. So it's sort of like, oh god, there's such a hill to climb in terms of being like, yeah, come see these plays. I swear they're good. That's why. I mean, I um. I, f I found out about you from watching um, Rich the Seconds, uh, show must go online. <laughs> but that's one of the the things that's really striking about that is they're doing full, properly full productions yeah. of all the plays. I, I can't imagine being able to see something like that. I could hear, hear an audio recording. Occasionally you, you see um, a version pop up on YouTube, but it almost always is filmed, you know, like a proud dad at a nativity. <laughs> so you, it's hard to kind of get yeah, into it. yeah. Um, no, it's fantastic. It's yeah. I mean, it's. I think that there's such there's such good plays. You know, I really want them. This is what I realized. My my sort of <clears throat> takeaway from doing the, this process was that like Richard the Third should never be done without Henry the Sixth ever again, and Henry the Sixth should be done without Richard the Third all the time. <laughs> like yeah, just balance it out. Yeah, but also just because like they deserve it. They deserve to get to stand alone, and also Richard. The third actually makes so much less sense when it's alone. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's he reacting to when he first walks on? What, where's he come exactly. from? Exactly, and who is this crazy old lady who's just wandered <laughs> in from nowhere? Yeah, yeah. What what's her story? Yeah, what is? It? Ooh, I want to know about her. Well, you can. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but this is my continual frustration. Sort of the gap between what I feel like I, <laughs> what can sell, you know, in terms of the world of Shakespeare performance and marketing and what I know people would like if they just gave it a chance yeah um, yeah I wanted to ask you about 
equal opportunity casting because it's come up a lot recently mm. um and mm-hmm. i've been involved with small theaters that have wanted to mm-hmm. be more diverse than really their catchment area is and so you yeah. see them kind of either falling into an accidental kind of tokenism um mm-hmm. of like oh you're you're the person that's not white so you'll get that you know that role um mm-hmm. or struggling or doing things that are kind of ethically dodgy in other ways like oh well we don't have anyone who can fit this part so go and find one from miles away even though they've got lots of actors that aren't those parts and you know leads into endless discussions about should you even do that play if you can't really responsibly put it on so it's so refreshing to see something like show must go online where it's it can produce things of that length and that quality and its catchment area is the world um so (laughs) they can they can uh, you know, cast whoever they want. Uh, so uh, what I wanted to ask you is, do you think people, it's harder to do it with the history plays that some people feel that too too much of a debt to history and that, that sort of makes them kind of freeze up at the idea of being as diverse as they might in a in a comedy? Yeah, I mean, that was certainly Trevor Nunn's excuse when he did them in 2015 mm. at the Rose and had an all-white cast in the year of our Lord, 2015. <laughs> I mean, and at least to the credit of everyone, you know, he really got uh, taken to task for that. Mm. And that was his excuse. You know, he's like, no, no, it's history. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> I've got some bad news about these plays. They're not very accurate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's... I. <sighs> Maybe, I don't know that I've noticed that history play the cast ex- with that as a conspicuous exception. I don't know that I've noticed that they are less um, diversely cast than other plays. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting, uh, my friend Emily McLeod wrote her master's thesis sort of about these questions of race and casting in the history plays. And like when um, David Oyelowo played Henry VI for the RSC in like the early 2000s, I think it was. And he was like, it was like, he was the first black actor to play a king at the RSC. Wow. So I think, you know, yeah, I know. God, I knew he'd been Henry VI. I didn't know that he was the first. I think he was, yeah, or like in a history play. Um, and so, you know, I guess, yes. I mean, maybe I'm being willfully naive in saying like, oh no, why would it be different? I think, you know, especially in this country, maybe it is different. I think that's changing. Mm. I mean, it's hard to say. I guess, but no, I mean, really fun- fundamentally, no, I don't think that, th- I think that there are still sort of, as you say, there's this habit of tokenizing in Shakespeare and sort of actors, like black actors, especially find themselves playing the same roles over and over and over again. Mm. And I think that's as true of the histories as of anything else. Um, but I don't think it's sort of more true of the histories than of anything else necessarily, except for the fact that they get done less often. So there's fewer opportunities yeah. for people to sort of reimagine what the sort of casting configurations might be Mm. but i think that that's you know they they suffer from the same problems that the whole kind of shakespeare canon suffers from in terms of you know a lack of imagination perhaps yeah in casting it it comes back to what we were we were talking about earlier about the historical accuracy and how much you should how much credence you should pay that it seems yeah like anyone who has a knowledge of a historical period is entitled to get a kind of annoyed by oh well you know they wouldn't actually do that but most people don't if the essentials are, are, are sort of there and I think especially with plays it seems ridiculous to get annoyed at the idea of someone who's you know not white playing Henry the Sixth when there's everything yeah. else going on and, and in the context also of how it would have been originally performed with of course yeah you know, a boy Voices. playing Margaret as we've been talking about yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's just a I mean, I think that the real, to me, the real question is not like, you know, forget, 
I don't know if I could say this on this, like F accuracy. Oh, say it. It's, it's about, <laughs> yeah, great. Fuck, you know, fuck accuracy for accuracy's sake. I yeah. think there's like, I mean, it's such a new, I, I, I won't tangent again about Hamilton, et cetera, because that's sort <laughs> of what's been on my mind in terms of like, what does it mean to want, to want historical accuracy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But, you know, we did the Henry IV plays last summer, the winter before that. So sort of two winters ago now was this production of Richard II that was in the indoor playhouse at the Globe starring Adjoa Ando, a co-directed by her and Lynette Linton. And it was a cast of all women doing Richard II, all of whom had sort of ancestry related to former colonies. They were mm. all sort of like actors from the empire. And the thing, you know, but they also, the design, I wish I had the designer's name off the top of my head. I'm really sorry that I don't, um, was this sort of amazing mix of like, you know, it really took on board that like, okay, well, we're not just going to put these actors in doublets and hose. We're going to imagine what this country would look like if Adjoa is king. You know, mm. what is her country? What is her world? How can this not just be we are sticking these bodies into this play, but in fact, we are letting these women collaborate to make it the world and the play and the story that they would tell. And I think that that is, and in that maybe it is, especially in the history plays, there's this question and problem of how can it be more than just a superficial sort of like congratulations we have a black woman playing Richard II isn't that neat of us it's like well how is there being space made for her to decide what it means for Richard II to be black mm. rather than just he is still the same Richard II but oh my gosh it's a person with a different color skin playing it you know how can we sort of reimagine the storytelling in ways that give space and the, reimagine the rehearsal process in the way that gives space for actors to be sort of active collaborators in deciding what it means that they are playing that role and what it means for that character to actually share their identity. Mm. Um, Which is a big responsibility. Like it, it's... Absolutely. Diff really difficult to come... It's really interesting. That's the first time I've heard of that interpretation being kind of handed over to the design. Yeah, I think that... I mean, it's actually, it's online, I think. Oh, great. Um, they did like a filmed version of it. That I think it's... Just, I, I don't... I know it's on Vimeo somewhere, but uh, yeah, it's Adra Ando and Lynette Linton's Richard II. So I'm sure if you just Google that, uh, it will appear before you. But yeah, I mean, and I think to me, that's really sort of the, you know, what the question needs to be is, as you say, these are really difficult conversations. So how can we make space in rehearsal rooms so that actors who are not necessarily trained in thinking in, you know, the... the very careful and precise language of social justice and in having conversations in ways that white people don't get upset. Like it's just it's a huge amount of emotional labor. So how can we create rehearsal processes that provide support and scaffolding for those conversations to happen mm -hmm. and, you know, make it so that we're going again, a step beyond just saying like, well, yeah, like you're Henry the sixth and you're black, but it's, that doesn't change anything. And it's like, of course it changes things if he's, you know, this black King who's very religious, who everybody thinks is weak and incapable and is trying to undermine at every turn mm. that say, you know, that's a story. That's something that makes a difference. And I think, yeah, this production of Richard the second was really just, yeah, just did a really, it was a really great example of allowing the sort of implications of the casting to bleed into the storytelling in a really natural way. Mm. Yeah. And so in that respect, I think maybe it actually is especially a problem with the histories because you run up against this idea of like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Richard II, like he can't wear, you know, an Egyptian style uh, crown. He has to wear a normal crown. Mm. You know, and that's maybe where the sort of really set ideas that people have say like, okay, we're fine with David Oyelowo playing Henry VI, but only if it's in this aesthetic 
kind of language and this kind of dramatic language that we recognize as still English history. And if you start making it look like maybe it's not English history, that's when we're going to have a problem. Yeah. And maybe that's where you start to have people w w yeah, resisting that idea. Because of course, you know, we see like there are seed of this Hamlet that was set in Africa, which obviously had its own problems because it was a white director, but it's like, fine, it's Hamlet. It can be whatever. Mm. Denmark's whatever. But I suspect people are maybe less open to letting England, historical England, just be whatever. Yeah. And then again, you know, that they are plays. They're already wild reinterpretations of history. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like to me, it's like it's as you say, it's like there's it's not even a question of historical accuracy because mm. it's like, well, three quarters of these scenes never happened. So yeah. I don't really know. And also everyone's speaking in verse. Yeah, exactly. So there's like two strikes against it. It's, it's I think that there's I saw Emma Smith uh, has some writing and gave a talk that I saw once about yeah this idea that you know historical accuracy absolutely gets wielded as this sort of weapon mm. I mean again like when the BBC series of the hollow crown part two of the Henry the Sixes came out and Sophie Okonedo was cast as Margaret there's people like saying oh, this is like it's historically inaccurate that she would be black and you're just like I mean, I, there's a lot of things in this that are historically inaccurate, but of course it's always this cudgel that's directed particularly against women and mm. people of color and um, people who aren't heterosexual or aren't cisgender. Like, it's like, interesting. Mm. We don't mind that you made up this scene in the Rose Garden, but we do mind that you make up this scene between two women. Yeah. Or like, we don't mind that it was maybe a boy playing this role, but we do mind if it's a black woman. Or even that, you know, it's a northern guy and not a southern guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, that this this country, you guys and your accents, man. <laughs> <laughs> so many in such a small area. Yeah, and so particular about which are used when. Um, I was going to ask. So, do you? I mean, God knows what's going to happen with theatre. It's obviously been one of the worst hit um, sectors in terms of yeah attempting whatever a, a new normal would actually be which wouldn't be normal um yes do you think there's any anything positive that might carry over from innovative stuff like show must go online or this this more kind of stripped back way of looking at theater or do you think it's more going to be like a maintenance sort of run <laughs> if and when it comes back i mean honestly i think the latter i think that people are going to do whatever they need to do mm. to get a show up and do whatever they think is going to earn them the money they need to stay open unfortunately I mean and I think you know there might be some I think that that's going to in some cases result in things that are kind of seem like they're drawn from the more paired back styles of the kind of quarantine theater mm. but I think my suspicion unfortunately is that at least any large theater is going to be in like hyper conservative survival mode for the foreseeable and doing whatever they need to do to stay afloat <laughs> and again that actually will probably be a lot of it will be very pared back and going to be a lot of two-handers out there uh <laughs> yeah. after quarantine i suspect but yeah unfortunately i just don't um as glorious it would be if like this sort of post-quarantine could be this moment of sort of aesthetic flourishing mm. and um uh, experimentation. I suspect that that will happen only as a byproduct of needing to just sort of survive. Gosh. Well, um, I've just realized it's been almost two hours. I'm sorry I've kept you for so long. Oh, no, it's all right. It was great. It was a great conversation. And um, I see that the football game I was going to watch is going real bad. So oh, okay. oh, sorry. I'm happy to be missing it. No, no, it's for the best. Um, Who's playing? I use 
I'm too embarrassed to say who I support. <laughs> okay. Too, <fair laughs> um, it's too degrading to me as a person. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> Um, well, before we um, go, I want to ask where people can find you and read read things that you've yeah. written and, and follow you and stuff. So where's the yes. best place for... Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter way too much at <laughs> hbackrack, which is uh, B-A-C-H-R-A-C-H is my very hard to spell surname. Um, and I also have a website that is hayleybackrack.com. And that's where I have sort of my blog posts and some theater criticism and like sort of cultural criticism that I've written are all uh linked on there as well and that's basically yeah where I live online my twitter is a disgrace and I talk about <laughs> dogs a lot Real. um yeah and last thing before I I'm sorry to put you on the spot but I'm trying to ask um as many uh, guests as I have on since it's a book podcast if you have any particular recommendations of books that we haven't been talking about so not Henry the sixth but um, <laughs> but books perhaps connected to the world we've been talking about, either about history plays, about just the history, perhaps about theatre, anything. Yeah, I mean, my go-to recommendation that I'm sure has been said on this podcast before is James Shapiro's 1599, <laughs> A Year in the Life of Shakespeare. I'm sure you've got that one a lot. I mean, that was such a formative book for me, just in terms of thinking about sort of you know, what literary criticism can look like. Mm. Um, so I'll try and think of a more interesting answer since that it's one. It's not your uh, fault that someone, it's only one person actually who's backed that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's such a, yeah, it's a real, it's a heavy hitter in the field for sure. Mm. And also I'd rather recommend something by a woman. So in that case, I'm going to say, it's so hard because I've basically become illiterate in quarantine and I don't read books. <laughs> Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare, I think is great. Mm. She's an amazing writer and scholar and person. Um, uh, so definitely uh, recommend her that book. It's like a, you know, sort of general audiences could just kind of essays about various Shakespeare plays. Mm. Um, I think for people who are looking to get a bit more dense and scholarly, one of the sort of, this is not about the history plays as such, uh, Passing Strange by mm. Ayanna Thompson. It sort of connects to the conversations that we were having sort of in the latter part of this about sort of race and performance of Shakespeare and casting. Um, Ayana is one of the sort of leading scholars of Shakespeare in the United States, but also I think just in the world. Um, she's incredible and definitely worth checking out. Brilliant. Well, I'll definitely check that one. Can I also ask, what was the, was it Engendering the Nation or Engendered Nation yeah. you mentioned earlier? Engendering a Nation um, by Phyllis Rackin and Jean Howard. Um, and yeah, as I said, the text for kind of feminist analysis, feminist analysis of the Shakespeare plays and sort of trying to theorize and kind of in a literary way work out that question that you raised of why do the female roles kind of recede uh, in prominence in the history plays. And that just about wraps it up for today. Thank you so much once again to Hayley Backrack, who you will hear more from in the upcoming episodes on Henry VI, parts two and three. Don't forget to visit Hayley's website and check out her newsletter, Dramatist Personae. Both are linked below in the episode description box. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Uh -huh.